And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This is my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is All of the Above, your home for news and analysis of all things related to education. If you are catching us on YouTube for the first time ever, if you enjoy what you see, please consider giving us that thumbs up and, and subscribe so that we could build up our, our viewership. And if you're listening to the audio podcast, we appreciate you doing that. Please remember to rate us and review us if you have a moment. Um, Jeff, man, this is the fifth or sixth socially distanced episode, I think, as part of our, our special series on COVID-19 and, and its impact on schools. Um, so it's been about a month and a half or just about a month and a half. How are you holding up, Jeff? Oh, it's, it's been only a month and a half. It feels like it's been a year and a half, man. Feels I'm, like it's I'm been struggling. years, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, all things considered, I am I am just fine. I, you know, I, I'm still employed. I have food. I have health. Uh, so I have a lot to be grateful for. But I will tell you, uh, I'm starting to go a little bit crazy, man. Well, I, I was not built for this work remote life as my <laughs> my only way of doing things man I'm going crazy how uh how are you holding up um I mean I, I'm I'm doing all right I mean I'm blessed I can't I can't complain you know uh households intact jobs intact um I thankfully have a backyard and I feel like this is of my entire life this is where I've most appreciated having a backyard uh where I could yeah. go get some sun some fresh air and and all that so that's been that's been a big plus um, but this Zoom life has been has been really challenging. So we don't use Zoom with our students. We use Google Meet. But um, as part of my work with the uh, Department of Ed and some other folks, like I'm on Zoom quite a bit. And there was a day recently where I had a Zoom session from nine in the morning till four as part of our work with the Instructional Quality Commission for the California Department of Ed. And I could tell you when this whole closure business is over. I aspire to not have to open up Zoom again because I'm just I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of it, man. Yeah, as much as Zoom has really actually been a tremendously important uh, help to many of us at it Google has Meets been. and Microsoft Team and all the other products, which you know, if you want to sponsor all the above, I guess you I guess you could. But uh, as much as they have helped us, uh, <laughs> I think you're not alone in saying. I hope I never have to be on one of these things for Man. at least for a while once we hopefully can get back to some type of normal, you know, later this this summer or even into the fall, because uh, it is, you know, it's just a different it's a different way, man. I'm not. It's not I'm, the same, man. Yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. And and I there's so many people trying hard, you know, to like keep engagement up and we're doing fun things in the Zooms and stuff. And, you know, it, it helps me stay connected with my family because I'm, you know, thousands oh, yeah. of miles away from most of my of my family and even a lot of my you know oldest friends in the world. But uh, at the same time, man, just the simple stuff, man, like going to Target and not being afraid, like that's going to be an amazing day. <laughs> man, that's going to be just the best, the best. Yeah. Um, yes. 
for me, it's just the the classroom, man. I'm built for the classroom. I miss it. I miss the feel of it. I miss complaining about how cold the AC blows in my classroom and me not being able to do anything about it. Um, miss seeing my students, you know, seeing them on Google Meet and seeing them in various platforms. Like, it's just not the same, you know, and we're doing our distance learning thing and, and we're having a really good time at it, but it's not, it's just not the same as being in person, like, at all. But, you know what I'm saying? We got to yeah. just keep hanging in there and hope for the best for the fall because who knows what the fall semester is going to look like. But, you know, let's not even get there um, just yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you on that. I, this, this past week I went into my office and, you know, it's a ghost town, of course, because everything is, you know, everything is shut down. Everyone's working remotely. And the shutdown started uh, on what was going to be the, the second day of we, we hold a monthly training with our assistant principals uh, in the schools I work with. And we do two uh, on back to back days. And so the first day happened and then the second day we didn't happen because of the shutdown. And so I walked into our conference room and it was still set up for what was, you know, supposed to be our like March 17th or whatever, whatever the day was, uh, training with the APs. It's just an eerie feeling, man. That's that apocalyptic, like, man. Yeah, like time just stopped, uh, <laughs> you know, on that day and, and has not moved forward, uh, you know, since that point in the office. That's wild. So, yeah, our kids, they yeah. still haven't cleaned out their lockers. Like everything's just how we left it. It was just like we all left thinking it'd be a week or two and it ended up being the whole rest of the school year. So mm. I, I don't know what that mix of emotions is going to be like when I go back into my classroom and, and see things as, as they were on March 14th or whatever day that was. Um, crazy, crazy. All right. Yeah. In any case, um, we have a, a pretty special, prolific, big time, legendary guest today, Jeff. Talk to us about that. Well, we do. We do. Those are all the right adjectives. Prolific, big time, etc. Yeah. Uh, we have someone who I'm sure educators from across the country have heard of. Uh, you know, we sometimes call him Larry the Legend. He yeah. goes by Larry Ferlazzo. Uh, he is a prolific author. He is uh, a writer of books. He writes at least two blogs that I'm aware of. He hosts a weekly radio program. Um, he's been interviewed on TV. His works appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc., etc., etc. The man uh, probably doesn't sleep. This is my this is my theory <laughs> for how he could do all this because he also is a full time teacher at a high school in Sacramento. Um, and Sacktown. so we have yeah, exactly. You're you're neck of the woods. So yep. we have Larry Filazzo coming on, and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about two things. Um, Larry is, of course, an expert in the work of supporting our English learners. He teaches, um, you know, English learners uh, at his high school. Um, so we're going to be talking about one of the big questions that people have been wondering about, which is, you know, in this distance learning world, how do we support the needs of our students who we know have the most, uh, you know, acute needs? Um, and here in California, as in many places around the country, that includes our English learners. We're also going to talk to Larry about uh, really just kind of educator voice and, and his own professional journey as a teacher who has, you know, sort of risen to a, a place of being an author and really sharing his perspective um, in kind of the, the public discourse and policy making space about education as well. So Larry's coming on. It's going to be dope. You definitely don't want to miss it. 
Nice, nice. Uh, Jeff, I feel like you you undersold Sacramento, the Sacramento aspect of that. Uh, I feel like that could have been emphasized a little bit more, you know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Uh, Do Sac tell. Town, Do specifically tell. South Sacramento, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Area code 916, you know what I'm okay. saying? So I'm really excited to have Larry the Legend for Lazo on our show representing Sacramento. Um, but for those of you, if this is the first time you've seen our show or, or, or listened to our show, this is part of our special series on the uh, COVID-19 school closures. But we have uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of previous episodes about all sorts of topics um, in the world of education. So do consider going to our website, aotashow.com, and digging through the crates and, and seeing our episodes about uh, Teach for America and, and school discipline and grading policies before COVID, and then we had a grading policies during COVID episode. We have a bunch there, so definitely consider checking us out at aotashow.com. All right, normally this is where we would break for the do now, and during the do now, we take a look at recent headlines in education, such as the recent news that Betsy DeVos is um, not, not the most compassionate individual out there in the world. And it turns out for, um, you know, that package of, of support for college students, um, she specifically helped render it, um, render DACA students ineligible for those supports. And there's much more to it, but the, the narrative, not the narrative, really the, the theme of Betsy's reign as Secretary of Education has been one of tremendous bigotry and violence towards uh, particular student populations and our um, DACA recipients being one of them. So we would normally talk about that and, and have some details during our do now and take a look at some other headlines. But right now in the COVID-19 school closure era, we are trying to hit the big topics related to the uh, closures specifically. So we're going to jump right into today's seminar, which will be a discussion with Larry Ferlazzo. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. And I have to tell you, I am just thrilled and excited to have with us today's guest. We have uh, just someone who I have come to admire uh, greatly in our field, a, a truly prolific voice in education. Larry Ferlazzo is with us today. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Larry. Uh, Larry has been a high school teacher since 2003 after spending 19 years working as a community organizer. He teaches beginner, intermediate, and advanced English language learners, as well as native English speakers at Luther Burbank High School in Sacramento, California. Larry is a truly prolific author with 12 books to his credit, including the English language learners teacher's toolbox. He also writes a popular blog available at larryferlazzo.edublogs.org and writes a regular blog with Education Week called Classroom Q&A with Larry Ferlazzo. Larry has taught in the teacher credentialing programs at Cal State Sacramento and at UC Davis, and his works have appeared in the New York Times, ASCD's Education Leadership, and the Washington Post. He also hosts a weekly radio show on BAM Education Radio. Larry is married, has three children and two grandchildren, and somehow, it, it would seem, according to legend, does actually sleep while, <laughs> while doing all of that. So welcome, Larry, to all the above. Well, thank you for the invitation. As you know, I'm a longtime fan of the show, and uh, it was an honor to get the invitation. We appreciate you so much, Larry. And um, obviously, these are unprecedented times. And many folks, including yourself, have have spoken about how when it comes to 
inequities in our in our school system, these school closures, these COVID-19 related school closures, um, if anything, they they highlight these inequities and exacerbate them in, in many ways. And in California, um, across the nation, really, but but in California, for sure, one group that we're really concerned about um, being negatively impacted by this distance learning uh, remote learning era are English learners. Um, so we're wondering if you could tell us, are, are we right to be concerned about English learners during this uh, distance learning period? And if so, why? Well, clearly English language learners, ELLs, are a very vulnerable population. Um, I think, you know, overall, uh, I think that the vast majority of students are going to do okay through this distance learning, because at least from our district, it happened uh, right before spring break. We were going to have two weeks of standardized tests with not much else happens. And the last two weeks of school are not really high academic engagement times. And so in effect, 70% of our school was done, 30% was left. You, we do, you know, you eliminate those weeks that leaves maybe 15%. And a study that just came out said that, found that learning happens twice as effective at the beginning of the year than it does at the end of the year. So I think for most students, I think they're gonna be okay. I think there are three student populations in particular that are very, very vulnerable, including English language learners, students with special needs, and then the students we all know who are on the bubble for dropping out anyway. And this is what's going to sort of put them over the edge. Uh, so I think for ELLs in particular, who uh, are at risk, many legally, financially, their family, you know, fam family financial issues, and the fact that uh, the challenge of learning a language uh, is unique, and especially. Uh, you know, if you look at the context of all the other stresses, especially for students who may not have a whole lot of formal education prior to coming here, so they, can, they don't have that experience of school to fall back on that so many other students have of years of, okay, this is how, this is how we learn. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it is a challenge, and that's why, for me, what we're doing is I, I do a daily uh, live half-hour class for our newcomers, uh, and they really need uh, that kind of English input and opportunities for English output, because a lot of our ELLs, I mean, their families don't speak English either, right? So there's not a whole lot, and they're, and they're stuck in the house. Um, so they, you know, in, in communities where there is not technology, that students can access. I mean, our school district finally got around to give them Chromebooks two days ago. Uh, but up until then, I've been doing the classes through everybody's cell phones, uh, and you know, which, which is limiting. But for especially in communities and rural communities where ELLs don't necessarily have the technology available, uh, it's going to be a real challenge, and they will get further behind. I mean, it takes six to seven years for a student to gain academic proficiency in English, and this is not going to help them. Yeah, Larry, um, 
you know, you mentioned some some strategies there that you're implementing with with your students. And I'm wondering if you can can tell us a bit more about that, like how you've gone about kind of adjusting your your teaching or adjusting the curriculum, given the particular needs of of English learners and and maybe offer some some insight that that folks around the country who are grappling with the same questions uh, can can use to think about their their own practice during these very unconventional times. Well, for many years when I've been teaching newcomers, the last two or three months of school, we do a, a fun unit on animals. We do a good unit on work. Then we finish with a story, writing stories. We write stories individually and together. And that sure got thrown out the window. Okay. So this is uh, a time when if there's any time that we need to have a student-driven curriculum, this is the time. Because really, my students don't have to come to school, right? It's easy for students not to come to school right now. Uh, so the first day I asked students, well, what do you want to learn about? Because in teaching ELLs, I can teach reading, writing, listening, speaking about anything. So they talked about, okay, we want to learn about the coronavirus. We want to learn about jobs. Uh, we want to learn about sports. And we want to learn about the military because some of the students were in our JROTC program. Great. That's my curriculum till the end of the year. Okay. I mean, I can do lots of stuff. I can, uh, you know, show pictures and label pictures with certain vocabulary about any of those topics. And then students write sentences in the chat window. You know, I see them, I give them feedback on that. We end with a game that reinforces everything that we learned during that time, usually online with a tool called quizzes. There's lots of them like, you know, Kahoot and Quillicize and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, that's a, a, that's a key thing. And then we, I begin each class with a question related to social emotional learning, sort of, you know, what are you grateful for that's, you know, today, you know, that somebody did for you in the past week? I am grateful because mm, did mm, right so i mean there's lots of opportunities but you got to be flexible you just got to be flexible i think the real i mean if ells are in a class a specialized class for english language development they're going to be in a lot better position right because we are we you know we're specifically trained in how to encourage that kind of language development the real challenge for ELLs is going to be they're in content classes where lots of teachers have problems scaffolding and supporting ELLs in their regular content classes in the physical school. They don't have a clue of how to support ELLs uh, on Google Classroom on <laughs> their class, you know, on their classes. That I mean, that's going to be a real problem. And I think that's why I really think that you know ELLs, special ed students, and the students who are on the bubble from dropping out, those are the, the student populations that are particularly vulnerable. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out the student-driven aspect of, of this distance learning experiment because experiment, you know we've been talking on this show and, and, and off the show really about grading policy. And I know at my school site, there's a lot of teachers who are concerned about the fact that, at least in our district, we can't issue Fs. And students are saying, well, why are they going to come to school? Why are they going to, you know, do any of the work? But you said it right there. Like this is, it's easy for students to not engage in school right now. So we got to 
listen to them and give them what they are most interested in. Um, and, you know, it should always be that way. Things should be student driven. But I think now, especially um, more than ever. But um, in any case, as far as English language learners go in, in California, especially they've received a lot of attention in recent years from policymakers. And we're wondering if you could um, maybe discuss a little bit about in general, like even outside of this this COVID-19 experience, um, what are we getting right when it comes to English language learners and policy and, and what might be some areas that we still have to really improve on? Well, clearly over the past few years, uh, there is a greater policy emphasis on English language learner support. And I think that has translated to the ground into the ground as well, that most districts are, are much more cognizant of the importance of providing support to ELLs. Uh, sometimes that translates into effective support, sometimes ineffective support, right? So that uh, clearly the additional resources and materials that are coming and the higher quality materials are being made available to teachers and students really has been very helpful. I mean, for years, especially for older ELLs, the only books out there that they, that they could access were children's books for five and six year olds. That certainly is not very engaging, you know, to a teenager, right? So, you know, with there, you know, there's more support for the creation of uh, you know, graphic novels, graphic books, uh, where, um, uh, where it hasn't, I think, translated really well is, you know, the National Every Student Succeeds Act makes reclassification of English language learners a high priority. That means that they are moved from the category of ELLs to being English proficient. And then they don't necessarily have to uh, to get additional support. The problems with that is the same problem that we had with No Child Left Behind, when school districts and administrators and teachers felt pressured to to get students uh, into greater scores, higher scores, so they would you know look good. Uh, you know they would do things like not put students in class don't not put students in higher level math classes because they didn't they didn't want the students to do badly on that higher level math class standardized test so it was you know or they would game this game the system one way or another you know by encouraging lower proficient students to leave here i think the negative thing is trying to game the system to get students reclassified sooner then they uh, are ready to, uh, and then therefore lose the additional support that they need to be successful. And a fair number of studies have found that that uh, may be occurring. So we need to make sure that we are not data-driven, but instead data-informed, and recognize that uh, we don't need to do shortcuts to reclassify ELLs sooner than, than is appropriate for their learning journey. So that's one concern. Another concern, you know, at least here in California, for, year, you know, for years we had the CELT test, 
C C E L D T, and I even forget what it's called. That was the English language test that would gauge if students, you know, gauge students' English proficiency. Uh, and a lot of it was stupid, <laughs> but, it, but at least, you know, some of it was decent. I mean, especially stupid that we couldn't get the results for another year, right? So you take a test and then, you know, uh, but it was one-on-one. -on -one. It was good. Uh, and that was good, right? It's an opportunity to develop, develop some relationships, for, especially for some of the aspects of it. Now it's all online. This year, the whole CELT test, it's now it's not called CELT, it's called LPAC was done online. And uh, just as re you know, some research has shown that standardized tests that are done online sometimes are more accurate uh, assessments of students' technology ability and not of their knowledge of the content, that, that had, you know, that's a potential danger here with, uh, uh, with, the, with the LPAC. And I think especially for newcomers, it is not, we're not going to have a very accurate assessment of the English proficiency of students who have been here uh, a year or less. So, but they're trying. But uh, I think for, for more proficient ELLs, they like the online, the online work. For less proficient in English, less English proficient students, I want to emphasize it's proficient in English. They're proficient in a whole lot of other ways, and a lot of my ELLs speak multiple languages. Uh, so we want to emphasize that not speaking English does not mean that students are less smart because that's a stereotype unfortunately many people including some teachers believe. Uh, but uh, for newcomers I think it is not a very supportive environment for them to uh, and to accurately assess their English. Yeah, I'm so glad you made uh, that that last point there, Larry, about the you know the other proficiencies that English language learners bring to the table, um, and of course you know as all of our students do, right? But um, but even in the the sort of labeling of this group as uh, as being somehow deficient, right? Um, you know, I think causes some conscious or unconscious. Uh, you know, labeling of these students as, as being in need, right? And as an educator, and I'm, I'm very curious to get your perspective on this, I've always kind of come to the table thinking that, frankly, you know, what good English, what good instruction for English language learners looks like is almost entirely just good instruction um, that is also good for every other student in school. Um, but as someone with, you know, with certainly a great deal of, of experience and expertise, uh, I'm curious to get your, your reaction to that and, um, and whether you agree or disagree with that statement and, and uh, how we might frame that with, with other educators. I think you're absolutely right. Good ELL teaching is good teaching for everybody. And uh, all, the, all the skills that I bring to teaching ELL newcomers I bring to teaching my international baccalaureate classes as well. It's made me a better teacher. Our administrators uh, at our school have always made a very, or in the last 20 years, have made a very explicit uh, attempt to recruit ELLs to our school because our administrators believe, I believe, I think correctly, that the more ELLs that come to our school, it makes all of our teachers better. 
to develop those scaffolding skills uh, that are necessary, not just for ELLs, but for everybody. So uh, I think there is little, there are, there are a few other strategies that are more effective, I think, at enhancing teacher skills than trying to get ELLs in their classes, you know, I mean, you know, and, and at the same time, provide the instructional strategies that they need to use to support them, which will result in supporting them all, everybody, whether there are sentence frames. I use sentence starters with my IB students in classroom discussions to promote critical thinking skills. They need academic language as much as our ELLs. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, Larry, with, with that in mind, you know, there are so many educators out there who are, you know, trying our best, right, from afar to support the needs of, of our students. And, uh, and what I often see in, in the classroom is, you know, one of the main tools that people use to support students with special needs of any sort uh, is proximity, right, is like, I'm watching you, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting next to you and talking to you and trying to get a feel for how you're doing or how engaged you are or how frustrated you are, you know, or those, those sorts of things that come from being next to a person, being able to read their body language and being able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And that feels, at least to me, like it's been largely kind of robbed from, from teachers right now. And so in, in that context, um, and with the point you just made, what advice might you offer to, to teachers that are like, look, I, you know, I know these needs exist. I want to help the students, but I'm not sure what to do in this context. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think the, the recommendations that I make, especially to content teachers, are one, you know, provide writing for writing, provide writing frames or writing structures, which are basically graphic organizers with various levels of support, sentence starters so that students have a sense of what they're supposed to write. Make sure you, you give models uh, of, of that kind of work. Um, I think uh, there's this bilingual teaching strategy that's popular called preview, view, review, where teachers are supposed to teach in the home language. I mean, preview in the home language, do the lesson in English, then review in the home language. Obviously, we can't do that, but there are lots of materials online in students' home languages that you can give them. For example, what I do in, when I'm teaching U.S. history, I'll give students a summary of a chapter of a different textbook, uh, but covering the same general area that's available in let's say Farsi or Spanish or Hmong, and say, hey, next week we're going to study this. Can you read this in your home language and get, uh, so you, you know, get some sense of it? Or if you're using a brain pop video, the videos are in Spanish. Have students watch that first. There are lots of things that are available, especially free right now, because everybody's making all their stuff free uh, to support students. So to, to, to give students some of the needed background knowledge that will help them uh, learn the new content that you're going to teach. Um, I mean, those are just a couple of examples. 
Nice. Now, now, Larry, while we have you here, um, you know, everybody who's anybody in education knows that you are truly a prolific writer and a prolific figure in our profession. And your career journey has been a, a really fascinating one that had uh, has years of community organizing in it and, and transition to teaching. Now, um, Jeff and I sort of uh, jokingly refer to you as Larry the Legend. And I think it's been said that anybody who's either from South Sacramento or works in South Sacramento has some element of a legendary status to them. I think that's I think that's science. Um, but in any case, um, Larry, we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your, your professional journey and that transition to being a classroom teacher and how your um, previous history helps influence your, your current practice in the classroom and in, in writing and advocating. Uh, yeah, and we should point out, Manuel, you're from South Sacramento as well. So, right? <laughs> actually, you're right. I am. <laughs> um, well, uh, both my parents are immigrants and are originally from New York City. Um, and so I, you know, certainly have been connected to the, uh, to the immigrant community for, you know, for a while. And I became a, uh, community organizer uh, working for an organization called the Industrial Areas Foundation that was started by a man named Sololinsky 70 years ago, uh, which has works with unions and religious congregations and community groups to basically build political power and make social change. So I worked in various communities as an organizer for the IAF for 19 years. And during that time, uh, I mean, the focus of organizing is, yes, we want to get better child care. We want to get, uh, you know, le better legalization efforts. We want to get better affordable housing. But that those, those strategies, those issues are just tools to help develop long-term leadership. And so what I was finding that with people that I was working with, that people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, were learning uh, lead, the leadership skills that they didn't really know they had. And it was really transforming their lives. So I thought to myself, well, maybe it'd be better if people began to learn these things at a little younger age. Uh, so that's what, began, that's what began my journey to exploring being a teacher. And, uh, so, and this is my 17th year as a teacher. So about 18 years ago, I decided to make that switch after observing a lot of different uh, classrooms in action. And the teacher at Burbank High School uh, near Manuel's home, uh, approached original home, uh, well, your original home, uh, was was open to that idea of exploring how to incorporate leadership development in classes and i was especially interested in working with english language learners most of my work in organizing had been in immigrant communities and burbank was the center that was the year the final uh refugee camp for the Hmong closed in thailand in the Hmong were people who worked for the CIA during the Vietnam War and were told that if the U.S. lost, 
they would be able to come to the United States. So I went to Burbank and had the incredible opportunity of teaching students, high school students who had never been in school before. And I mean, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? How often can a high school student teach a class of students who had never been in school before? So uh, that was quite a first couple of years and have uh, been at Burbank ever since, uh, teaching English language learners and social studies and mainstream classes. I mean, and IB classes sort of teach everybody. And one of the things that we do in our IB classes, our IB program is that we really, a lot of IB schools, they just have people who are taking all IB classes. And what we do at our school is we try to recruit as many students as possible into as many IB classes as possible. So I have a lot of English language learners in my IB classes, a lot of students who are not taking any other IB class. So it's, a, it's a, I think, a much less um, um, sort of privileged environment, uh, and we create, create lots of opportunities for students. Larry, um, one of the things that I uh, certainly uh, appreciate about you is I think in some ways you occupy, you know, maybe a relatively rare space in education in that, you know, there are a million people out there publishing, you know, books and resources. Um, you know, our, our field is awash with, with stuff. Um, but I find at least that the, the vast majority of the creators of that stuff are people who, you know, perhaps used to be uh, classroom teachers or, you know, who are mostly writers or consultants or, uh, you know, people who are doing work, good work often, but outside of uh, the kind of practitioner space. And, um, and so you are someone who kind of bridges those two worlds. You've written numerous books. Um, you, you know, publish content online on your blogs um, and, you know, bring together uh, the voices of practitioners um, very regularly. And you also teach every day. And I think that makes you, um, you know, not only somewhat what unique in that way, but also particularly valuable because the, you know, the voice of educators is, is so important. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit, frankly, just about how you manage uh, <laughs> to do that. Uh, you know, what's, what's your routine, Larry? Um, but also, um, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts about the, you know, the importance of uh, educator voice and, um, you know, educators weighing in on, on these big questions in our profession. Well, it's true. There are a lot of books out there, but not a whole lot that have been written by teachers, you know, actually who are working in the classroom right now. That's why that the last three books that my colleague Katie Hull and I edited that were just published last week uh, in the Toolbox series are all written by teachers who are in the classroom now. I mean, I think it just brings a much more authentic experience. And it's like when I think of or my organizing career, I think, uh, I mean, I was a really good organizer. And I think a year after I left organizing, I still could probably offer some decent advice. Two years later, I could still offer some decent advice. But I think that every year I was away from organizing, 
the you know the the advice I was able to offer was less effective and less wise, and I think to a certain extent it's similar to to teaching. Uh, I mean, unless you're, I mean, for example, this whole remote teaching idea. I don't care who you are, if you are not now teaching students in remote teaching, I don't really want to hear your advice because you don't have a clue of what is happening, you know, having to track down students, having to, you know, talk to parents, having to figure out engaging curriculum and all that stuff. It's just very different, you know? I mean, I wish district officials and not in many districts, school districts, <laughs> remember that and heard that as well, that they really don't have a clue of what it's like for teachers teaching remotely every day. Um, that said, there are exceptions, okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, I do know that there are some people who are not in the classroom who I still think can offer some ex excellent advice. So, and I'm definitely open to hear it, hearing it from them. Uh, but I think teachers, I know it's crazy, uh teaching and writing but power does not accept a vacuum if we don't you know step in other people are going to step in and speak for us and they may very well not have a perspective that is the most helpful one to our students and their families Man, that's big facts right there, Larry, big time. Um, you know, we really appreciate not just you taking the time out to be on our show, of course, but um, we really appreciate all you do for for teachers out there. I mean, just following you on Twitter, I see you amplify the voices of so many other educators and and really use your platform for good and to, to really help move the needle when it comes to all of our students, but particularly our most marginalized students. And your passionate advocacy for the teaching profession and for all of our students is, is really 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 appreciated and valued and, and really important because um, as you just said like there's a lot of folks out there who who do have a, a, a big platform but perhaps haven't been in the classroom for a long time and, and things change so much and especially now in this distance learning era I mean this is um, this is something where the, those of us who are in the classroom working hard like need to like like you do all the time share resources and share best practices and really have each other's back uh, to the extent possible so I really appreciate all that you do for your students and, and for teachers across across the land and definitely appreciate you taking the time out to to be on our show and to to share some of your experience with us well again thank you for the invitation and this show deserves a very very wide audience uh i mean you folks consistently deal with the most important issues of education and bring thoughtful analyses to them well, thank you, Larry. We, we appreciate that. And um, one, one final question for you. Uh, for folks out there who, uh, who heard your words today and are interested in learning more about you and uh, reading your publications or purchasing your books, where, where can they go to, uh, to find out more? Just you know, search my name or lead, lead you to my blog. I mean, there's tons of free stuff. You don't have to buy my books. Is, you know, there's, there's lots of free videos and free resources and my columns, you know, my blog posts and columns at Edweek. There's lots of stuff out there. I mean, I would, I agree that I am prolific. The quality of it is maybe 
varies, but I would agree that I am prolific. <laughs> All right. Well, we will link uh, to Larry's blogs and uh, some of the some of those online resources that will help you get to know uh, Larry Ferlazzo's work. But um, Larry Ferlazzo, thank you for joining us today on All of the Above. And folks, next up is today's Class Dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, it's time for today's Class Dismissed. And this is a time in each episode where we like to kind of pause, take a moment to, uh, to reflect a bit and give some shout outs to people across the country and even across the world who are doing great things in the field of education. Uh, Manuel, what do we got for today? Well, Jeff, for today, we want to give a extra special shout out to Seattle Public Schools. Seattle Public Schools, as far as I know, they are the first major school district in the nation to adopt a universal A's policy for grading during this pandemic. So of course, we've talked about it quite a few times. A few episodes ago, we had uh, Leo Glaze on to talk about grading policy and we explore just how really impossible it is to accurately measure students' achievement and progress during this school closure because obviously there's tremendous inequities when it comes to tools and, and resources. We have record unemployment and we almost actually by the time that this episode posts, the um, death toll from the coronavirus crisis, sad to say, um, will be near what the that toll was for U.S. soldiers in the war in Vietnam in just a few months. And I wasn't around during the Vietnam era, but, you know, um, hearing from my dad and his classmates about the war and their experiences, obviously we know that was such a big, major, traumatic, traumatic, tragic episode in American history. And here we are in just a few months having experienced almost as many deaths on the U.S. side as that terrible war. And in the midst of all that, we're trying to teach students remotely, and, and it's just impossible to really measure um, student achievement during that during this time because we don't know what each student is dealing with, and we don't know uh, the extent to which each student has equitable resources available to engage in the learning. So in that episode, we discussed giving students all A's for the semester because it's the least harmful measure that we could come up with for grading during this pandemic. And after that episode, I, I thought about Leo's idea and what he said on our show, and I wrote a post on Medium called Give Them All A's, and, and I laid out my thinking as far as why that's the best policy. And that circulated some, and um, Kurt Hatch, I'm not familiar with him, but he is an administrator in Washington State. Uh, he wrote a post about grading policy, and he referenced my um, Give Them All A's article, and that one thing led to another, and next thing I know, I'm getting um, a notification from folks in Seattle that the Seattle Public Schools system was considering this All A's policy, and they went ahead and adopted it officially. So right now on the Seattle Public Schools website, they have their April 23rd letter to families explaining why giving students All A's is the right way to go. Now, in their explanation, they, they address the idea of pass-fail or pass-no-pass, no pass, and they acknowledge that by giving pass-no-pass, no pass, that might set their students at a disadvantage from private schools, from other districts that go ahead and give letter, letter grades. And the only way to ensure that Seattle's public school students aren't placed at a disadvantage in terms of their academic records for this time period is to give them all A's. So their, their policy is to give them all A's. Now they are allowing for an I or incomplete 
for cases where it's it's glaring and it's obvious that the student simply was not doing much or producing much for that class during during the whole semester. And my understanding is it's a pretty high bar to um, meet that. So in that case, I'm assuming as somebody who's not in Seattle, I'm assuming that's the student who was basically missing in action well before the school closures even happened. And um, out of basic consideration for whether or not that student did much at all or learned much at all, the incomplete is there. Still not an F, important to note. So shout out to Seattle Public Schools for being the first in the nation that I'm aware of to adopt this give them all A's policy. Now, San Francisco Unified is discussing this and they might be the next, who knows? But a shout out to Seattle because this is a courageous move. This is not an easy stance to hold because it goes against what so many people have been conditioned to believe about grades and having to earn it and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And this is, you know, kids are just at home making TikTok videos, not doing nothing. Why are we being easy on them or whatever? Like there's, I, you know, I've received a lot of those comments and a lot of messages along those lines. So Seattle Public Schools, they didn't, they definitely didn't have to do this. They could have did the safe thing and just said, okay, just no Fs or pass fail. But they took that extra bold step of saying universal A's. So shout out to Seattle and all the folks up there leading the way to make sure that the grading policy they have is the least harmful of all the policies that that are on the table and jeff like you mentioned before there's no easy choice here like all the policies have their their downsides including the the a's policy but of a whole bunch of not perfect choices giving them all a's is at least the safest in terms of us being able to walk away knowing that we didn't hurt the students academic records based off of the fact that this is a pandemic yeah, and you know, I would just want to add to that, Manuel, that uh, I think a shout out goes to you because uh, your your blog post, Give Them All A's, has, uh, you know, frankly, has ignited a lot of conversation in various parts of the country uh, with folks who I think maybe on some level kind of felt that that was the right move, but it sounds like such a sort of controversial or maybe even ridiculous thing to say, but yeah. you put together such a compelling argument for it. It's not, it's not surprising that it's, uh, it's catching some fire across the country. So props to you, props to, uh, you know, team hashtag all A's out there in the, in the Twitter verses and the Facebook verses yeah. or the and other, Blase the for, other verses. Putting yes. that idea out there. <laughs> yes. All the verses, all everywhere. The verses. Hashtag Team all A's, give them all A's, we out here. And uh, we are openly accepting uh, new members of the team because I believe, probably Jeff, you would agree that as this semester continues and as it gets closer to the end of the semester, more and more folks are gonna realize that whatever grading policy they thought would be a good idea isn't good enough. And I think more people are gonna come over to the all A's side as this yeah. unwinds. I would agree, I would agree. Well, folks, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you know, we, as always, uh, appreciate our audience and appreciate all the brilliant things people have to say in response to our content. If you'd like to engage with us, if you'd like to hear more and stay up on the latest from all the above, you can find us pretty much anywhere you can find good content online. So our website is aotashow.com. Again, that's aotashow.com. You can find all of our content there. We're on Facebook. Twitter. Uh, you can listen to us on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, just look for AOTA Show. 
Um, and of course, uh, as always, you can find us on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash all of the above. Make sure you subscribe and turn on those notifications so you can always have the latest from all the above. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.